Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for October 12th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. On today's show, we are delighted to welcome in a fellow follower of the country's high court, well-known constitutional law and Supreme Court scholar Dr. Adam Feldman, who often takes a data-driven approach to his scholarship and runs the site Empirical SCOTUS, which describes and often predicts judicial behavior based on quantitative analyses. With his trademark numbers-based approach, he has attempted to predict what to expect from new Justice Kavanaugh's first year on the bench in terms of, for instance, his oral argument participation, his likely ideological position, and his legitimacy as a justice viewed through a handful of measures. We'll also spend a bit of time chatting about another numerical question, one Dr. Feldman has written on, namely, whether an odd or even number court is preferable, given the growing reality, though one rarely squarely regarded, that justices predictably vote to advance policy preferences held by the party they're appointing president. Before hearing from Dr. Feldman, though, it's time for our opening briefs, a short roundup of appellate news bearing in particular on California practitioners. The president has taken another step to ideologically rebalance the Ninth Circuit, announcing an intent to nominate three Southern California attorneys to Ninth Circuit vacancies. Wednesday's announcement was not an official nomination, and it's one, as reported in our paper by Nick Sonnenberg, it's met with instant and vocal pushback from California's senior senator and ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Diane Feinstein, who said she had not been consulted on the trio's selection. The potential nominees are Patrick Bumate, an AUSA in the Southern District of California currently detailed to DOJ headquarters in D.C. as a counselor to the Attorney General, and Daniel Collins and Kenneth Lee, two private practitioners in Los Angeles, Collins with Munger, Tolles, and Olson, and Lee with Jenner and Block. Thus far, the administration's impact on the westernmost and fairly regarded most liberal circuit court has been modest, with two successful nominations just recently of Idaho attorney Ryan Nelson and Hawaii's Mark Bennett, whose opposition largely came from Republicans who considered him too moderate. One nomination that of Ryan Bounds to replace Dearred O'Scanlan was unexpectedly pulled. The eventual confirmation of these three men, again, who have not officially been nominated but only identified as intended nominees, is of course uncertain, especially considering Feinstein's protest, but if successful, would constitute a significant ideological recalibration of the court and place the president's imprint firmly upon it for decades to come. From the California Supreme Court, Updated judicial ethics rules were announced this week pertaining to a number of salient issues, including campaign donations, social media usage by judges, and the treatment of gender nonconforming litigants. Here to shed some light on the new codes of conduct is our Sacramento Beat reporter, Malcolm McLaughlin. Malcolm, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so these new judicial ethics rules approved by the California Supreme Court this week. Um, tell me, do you have any sense as to if... Um, some recent events precipitated them. They were, of course, in the wake of the first successful recall election uh, in the past several decades out of uh, Santa Clara Superior Court Judge Aaron Persky. Um, also, there's a very contentious election upcoming uh, for San Diego Superior Court Judge Gary Creep, who had been censured by the CJP for some uh, odds campaign solicitations and social media usage, I believe. As well as some things he said in court, I believe, yeah. Yeah, so do you have any sense as to, to whether some of those events uh, led to, to these changes? You know, I mean, it's really hard to say uh, precisely. I, I certainly talked to several people who were involved in the process. 
updating the, the judicial canon, uh, the ethics canon, is something that happens on a semi-regular basis. There was updates in 2015, 2016. Um, but, I mean, certainly looking at some of the changes they made, uh, it really does have kind of a ripped-from-the-headlines feel. Um, so one of the things on uh, transgendered expression and sort of making sure that judges refer to people by the right pronouns and, you know, deal with them in kind of the a way that respects their their, their gender identity. Um, I believe that came up in the Creep case. It's, it's come up here and there in some recent CJP proceedings where judges said things that were, you know, maybe clueless or inadvertently offended people. So this is, you know, addresses that. Um, I really feel like some of the most significant stuff had to do with the uh, the elections and, you know, when, you know, who you could solicit. There's actually stronger rules about who you can solicit funds from, but at the same time, they also kind of made this exception where judges can give funds to campaign funds to each other, and they specifically said that the rules apply to recall elections. Okay, that's interesting. Well, guess what? We just had the first successful recall of a judge in California in, I believe, 80 years, uh, Aaron Persky down in Santa Clara. And lo and behold, there is a uh, campaign in Contra Costa County that's going after three judges, I think uh, mainly in the juvenile division. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think there is a feeling, um, certainly among the Judges Association, this is very much on their radar, that we we're living, you know, definitely in a period where uh, judicial positions and judicial ethics are a lot more political than they used to be. We're also in the midst of, you know, Me Too certainly plays into this. But I think there is much more of a feeling that judges are fair game now and that these campaigns really can be pulled off if you have, you know, enough people, enough money and are willing to, you know, go at it for two or three years like they did with uh, with Judge Persky. Sort of based on that and, and from reading your piece on, on these rules, I get the sense that there may be some intimation or some suggestion that that specific rule about um, expressly judges being able to contribute to one another and recall elections is uh, a way in which judges could attempt to band together to perhaps make those recalls a little bit harder. Um, do you mm-hmm. have that sense or from talking to folks or judges or anyone well, I mean, certainly nobody uh, came out and said that to me. Yeah. But I also talked to Michelle Chan, who is uh, the main organizer behind, not an attorney, but one the main organizer uh, behind the recall efforts uh, aimed at 2020 in Contra Costa. And, you know, this was certainly, you know, on her radar. And kind of when I discussed the rules with her, she was like, hmm, that is very interesting. <laughs> You know, I mean, she didn't, uh, I think she didn't feel qualified to sort of say that's exactly what's going on, but certainly something on their radar screen. And I mean, some of the things that Judge Persky said during that recall effort, I think he kind of felt like it was really, the way the rules were set up, it was really hard to kind of gather money to kind of defend himself. And that, you know, once the thing really gathered some momentum, it was kind of a done deal. You mentioned some of the rules pertain to behavior on social media. That's certainly a prominent issue now. Public officials uh, putting out uh, potentially controversial thoughts over that medium. What are the the new rules as to social media usage? Mainly what it says is you have kind of rules about what you can say, when you can say it. 
the th two things that I pulled out from kind of the existing rules, I mean, two of the kind of the main things that they really don't want you to do is to lend the prestige of your office, especially to a political cause, um, and to do anything that would cast doubt on your ability to act impartially. Um, so these are longstanding rules, and um, to a certain extent, I would say these are sort of the least ripped from the headlines, because this is really probably something that was long overdue anyway. Um, I think this is definitely something, it's just like, you're a judge, you are more, more vulnerable than the average person to uh, having doubts cast upon, um, you know, your ability to be fair. Okay, um, any, anything else from these new rule changes that we should unpack? I mean, the only other thing is the, uh, the nominal gifts rule. Uh, so yeah, what, um, uh, what does that pertain to? Well, they put in a new nominal gifts rule, which it's basically similar to what you kind of have in politics where you can accept, you know, I, I don't think they put a specific dollar on it, but they said, you know, basically where a reasonable person would not perceive the gift as having an influence on the judge. Um, I think this was really just something where um, the, the Judges Association was very involved here, and they were just like, come on, guys, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to change a ruling over a paperweight or a coffee mug and, you know, really focus this on, uh, uh, on kind of the actual bad actors who might really be taking gifts that are worth something. Okay, great. Well, Malcolm McLaughlin from Sacramento, uh, thanks very much for hopping on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. As one of its first oral arguments of the new term, SCOTUS heard Wednesday an immigration appeal arising from the Ninth Circuit, one that could reanimate sanctuary city-centered disputes between the federal government and states. At issue is a statute mandating detention without the possibility of bail for a certain class of non-citizens whose prior criminal convictions render them eligible for deportation. Under the statute, mandatory detention applies when the government scoops up such folks when they are released from state criminal custody. The court must determine whether that when requires the government to immediately detain such individuals as they're released from county jails or state prisons, or whether the mandatory detention provision persists even where the when comes much later, perhaps several years later, after such non-citizens, including as the name party here was lawful permanent residents, have perhaps had families, found steady careers, and established strong community ties, making them more unlikely to skip bail were it granted to them. To chat a bit about the arguments now, we're pleased to welcome in Seth Stotter, a Department of Homeland Security veteran under both Presidents W. Bush and Obama. He served in a number of capacities, including as Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security for Border Immigration and Trade Policy. He's now a partner with Holland and Knight in Los Angeles. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Brian. Good, good to be here. Yeah, so this case arising out of the Ninth Circuit argued Wednesday's immigration case, a statutory interpretation case. It uh, is one that seems to center around the question of what the word in this particular statute, what, what the word when means. To help me make sense of that a little bit, what is the, uh, the statute at issue? It's, and what does it provide for? Sure. So, I mean, in a nutshell, what the case is about is this involves aliens who are here who have been convicted of crime, a certain number of crimes. So, under, under the ordinary course, I mean, it's long been the case that the immigration authorities, whether it be the old Immigration Naturalization Service and now U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, can arrest and detain any alien in the United States. And this is under a statute, part of the Immigration Nationality Act, that's codified at uh, 
Title VIII, U.S. Code, Section 1226A. And under that statute, uh, in the ordinary course, any alien can be picked up by ICE on, on a warrant for the person's arrest. And then, generally speaking, they are afforded a bail hearing. So they can go before an immigration judge and say, hey, ICE, you shouldn't be detaining me for X, Y, or Z reasons. I'm not a flight risk. I have equities in society. I have three children, et cetera, et cetera. Then in 1996, um, Congress, uh, in the broader context of a, of a pretty major crackdown on illegal immigration that came on the heels of you know, sort of a, a variety of, of different things, but, but in 1996, Congress passed a law requiring uh, the Attorney General and now applies to, to Homeland Security to detain all criminal aliens, uh, so aliens convicted of a long laundry list of potential crimes, um, some of which, you know, drug trafficking crimes, drug possession crimes, crimes of moral turpitude, um, which is a sort of an interesting term of art within the statute, which can be crimes, let's say, of burglary or theft or something like that that involve uh, potential uh, violence to the person or property, and uh, as long as it's uh, basically a felony. So as well as uh, a variety of other things like you human trafficking, human prostitution, money laundering, large number of crimes that conceivably come in here. And so under the statute that was passed by Congress in 1996, which is now codified at 8 U.S.C. 1226C, DHS is supposed to, for any of these aliens in this class of crimes, to essentially take them into custody when they finish their criminal sentence. So let's say somebody's been arrested and convicted of a crime in California. And then at the end of that conviction of the crime, they are now deemed inadmissible or deportable because they are a criminal alien. And so under this mandatory detention statute, DHS or ICE is supposed to take them into custody, hold them into custody pending their removal from the United States. And here's the key thing, is that under the statute, these criminal aliens are not entitled to bail hearings. So unlike the normal in the normal case where an alien can go to immigration court and seek a bail hearing, under this mandatory detention statute, ICE must hold this criminal alien pending the removal from the United States, and there's no bail, bail hearing uh, allowed. Now, um, just a few more points there. Congress passed this law in 1996, and this was discussed at, at length by the Supreme Court in the DeMoor versus Kim case, which uh, about 15 years ago or so upheld the constitutionality of this mandatory detention statute. And Congress, as Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time said, Congress passed the law because there was great concern about recidivism of criminal aliens. So say you might have somebody who, who commits a certain set of crimes or drug trafficking or something like that, and then they are out pending their removal from the United States or INS at the time couldn't find them, and then they just commit more crimes. And so Congress reacted to this by passing this mandatory detention statute, which, and, oh, and beyond that, INS often uh, at the time was not detaining criminal aliens because they didn't have the resources to do so. So they would just let these people go free uh, and then they would commit more crimes. And then um, Congress didn't like that situation. So they passed this law requiring mandatory detention. So, and this has been upheld by the, by, by the Supreme Court in DeMoor versus Kim and more recently in a case called Jennings versus Rodriguez uh, from, from last term.
Um, just one quick question on the the complement of the crimes that can bring folks within the reach of this particular subsection. So I know at our oral argument, uh, Stephen Breyer was a bit concerned that some of the crimes that could be committed that would render someone liable under this statute could be fairly slight. I think he mentioned one instance of a person, and I think in the class who had stolen some bus transfer tickets. Um, yeah. So it, how I guess how broad is the, has the class of crimes? I mean, it's an extremely broad class of crimes. I mean, like the bus transfer, I mean, it's an extreme case, but that was one of the plans. I mean, the cases involve uh, essentially their class action. So there's a number of different people within the class uh, with different situations. But yeah, I mean, one had stolen bus transfers. One of the named plaintiffs, in, who was ultimately sort of moot as to him uh, because he got cancellation of removal, but he was convicted of uh, two misdemeanor convictions for marijuana possession a long time, like years before he was picked up by ICE. A very broad sweep of crime. Also, in addition, as Justice Kagan pointed out in the argument, is that in some cases it's not crime. It could be mandatory detention for, for a, a suspected terrorist or the spouse or the child of a terrorist. Uh, so, you, so mandatory detention is also going to be hitting people who are, you know, conceivably are not even criminals, but they're sort of swept up in the um, in the statute. And the central question here, the question presented is whether when Congress says DHS is supposed to pick up these particular, this particular class of non-citizens when they're released from criminal custody, if that means they have to pick them up exactly right when they're released from criminal custody, or if it can really be sort of any time thereafter, or if instead, mm-hmm. uh, if they're picked up later, then just the broader catch-all provision applies, and, and which allows them a, a bail hearing. Is that the question? Yeah, I mean that's basically the question. It's, it's actually it's it's sort of a it's a difficult question that sort of turns some things on their head. I mean, you think about you know you have some pro law enforcement justices on the court, say like a, a Justice Alito, but who also is a textualist. And so, arguably, the textualist reading of the statute. I mean, 1226C says that DHS has to or ICE has to take and take a, a person into custody, and here's the money uh, quote from the statute quote when the alien is released. So the respondents in the case have said when the when the when the alien is released means what it says it says, which is that for mandatory detention to kick in, basically uh, you know within some wiggle room that the Ninth Circuit kind of crafted out, but within you know a reasonable degree of immediacy, as the Ninth Circuit says, ICE has to take the person into custody for the mandatory detention provision to kick in. So you know pretty much ICE has to be at the at the jail door. So let's say somebody gets out of uh, a, a local prison in Kentucky. ICE has got to be there pretty much ready to pick up that person and take them into mandatory detention, either at that point or within, a, as the Ninth Circuit says, a reasonable degree of Im- immediacy. And if they don't do that, then the other statute's got to kick in, 1226A, which is that ICE is going to have to issue a warrant, arrest the person, and then the person is going to be entitled to a bail hearing, which, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. So the, te- the, the text of the statute arguably sort of leads you to that conclusion. Now, the issue, though, is sort of, I mean, the government would sort of respond and sort of say, well, look, practical reality uh, indicates that uh, that's just not a reasonable reading of the statute. Number one, because of congressional intent, and congressional intent was trying to avoid that situation where the immigration agency, which is perpetually overwhelmed uh, and doesn't have enough resources to apprehend everybody. So therefore, uh, there's no way that ICE can be essentially at every single jail throughout the country waiting for every single 
potential criminal alien coming out and taking them into mandatory detention, A, even in the best of circumstances, and as Justice Alito pointed out in the Supreme Court argument, now you also have a movement of certain states and cities around the country, the sanctuary state movement, sanctuary city movement, where these local authorities are in many cases not telling ICE when people are going to be released. And the classic, most notorious example of this was was San Francisco uh, with the release of a a criminal alien who subsequently killed a person in San Francisco, Kate Steinle. He was subsequently uh, acquitted of murder. It seems like it was kind of an accidental uh, discharge of a firearm that killed her. But the the point being, it was a notorious case basically where San Francisco didn't tell ICE when this guy was being released. He was a multiple criminal alien, multiple return of uh, person who'd been deported many times and come back. Uh, and ICE didn't tell, was not told that he was being released, even though he should have been taken into custody. So Alito's argument essentially is to say, well, hey, practical reality is here. If you, if, if, if you read the statute like the Ninth Circuit has read the statute, then you're basically taking the world back to the way it was before 1996 when the immigration agency did not have the resources to apprehend everybody. And so most criminal aliens are not going to be held uh, under mandatory detention because of this tight textualist reading of the statute. And so therefore, this reading is going to thwart congressional intent in passing the statute. That's essentially the Alito argument. Now, the argument on the other side, uh, A, that you know, it, it helps to have the text on your side. Because I think uh, it does say when the alien is released. But the other thing is also just there's the practical equities and the due process equities. I mean, this didn't come up necessarily on a, uh, uh, this is not an as applied due process challenge, but there is, you know, sort of a, a whiff of the, a whiff of a due process problem here, I think, um, where, so you could have in one of these cases, uh, Moni Priap, he was uh, arrested for, uh, he came here as a, he was a Cambodian refugee came here as an infant, was arrested for um, and convicted of uh, marijuana possession many years ago. And then seven years later, uh, after he was arrested for battery, ICE picks him up seven years later uh, and then throws him into mandatory detention without any bail hearing uh, pending his removal. And, and one could argue that there's a, there's a bit of a due process problem. And, and Justice Breyer pointed it out as well, sort of probing the argument. Where does this stop? You could... What about 50 years later on somebody's deathbed? ICE shows up on your deathbed and says, well, 50 years ago, you were convicted of marijuana possession, so you're going to die and, and you're gonna, we're going to take you into custody. Right. Is that, I mean, is there a due process problem here? If that happens, you have no ability to uh, get bail. Yeah, that was a point that also Justice Gorsuch jumped in on and said, you know, well, how about what if it's yeah, been 30 or 50 years and really demanded an answer from the, the representative from the government, Zachary Tripp, who you know, sort of then reluctantly almost seemed conceded the point that, yes, there is no time limit that cuts off this uh, this section. So you could, there could be a passage of 50 years after a, a slight infraction or a small crime um, after which, and, and then you could be picked up and held without a possible bail, bail hearing. It seemed like an interesting exchange there, especially to see Gorsuch sort of uh, nailing down that particular point. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think Gorsuch, I think, is the interesting vote here. I think because he did, uh, I mean, while he certainly is, you know, he was, he's on the, he's on the conservative side of things. But just a few years ago, he he ruled against the government in a in, a, in an immigration case interpreting the, the the term aggravated felony under the uh, under the laws. 
and, and focusing on the uh, the vagueness of that term, unconstitutional vagueness. So I don't think I, I think Gorsuch is an interesting. He's probably the swing vote here because I yeah. just from looking at the argument, uh, you know, obviously you can never completely read the tea leaves on these arguments. One thing also interesting was you know, watching Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, you know, Justice Kavanaugh on the court. This is one of his first arguments. He seemed uh, pretty strongly in favor of the government here. The money quote from Justice Kavanaugh saying that uh, essentially harshness was congressional intent here. <laughs> Interesting, uh, a, a good uh, quote from the justice. Um, so, but I mean, I mean, you could see essentially at least some of the conservatives, certainly Kavanaugh, Ali, Kavanaugh and Alito were, were pretty vocal in the argument. Uh, I think probably would they appear to be on the side of the government. Thomas rarely speaks, but uh, in the arguments, but you can imagine he will also be on the side of the government here. The liberals seem to, to be uh, pretty aligned, uh, although Ruth Bader Ginsburg, actually, Justice Ginsburg, she some of her questioning was interesting, sort of pressing on the the respondents' counsel here, sort of talking about the anomaly of, of let's say, somebody is immediately arrested by ICE, then they don't get bail. But if they're arrested two years later, uh, they do get bail. And that's sort of, you know, why does that make sense? Sort of, she's pressing that point. Uh, but I think she probably would line with the with the... But the liberals, so you'd have four on the liberal side, three on the conservative side. And Roberts, I think, was pretty quiet, but he often can be a swing vote. But I think Gorsuch, I think, is going to be the ultimate swing vote in this case. I wanted to, to unpack real quick just a, a conversation that Justices Breyer and, and Alito seem to be having throughout the course of the, the argument over you know, the, the nature of, of these hearings and, and the, the ability of courts to, to rightly keep and allow out the folks from this class. Brian made the point that, you know, what really, or asked the question, what really is the harm here? You know, we give bail hearings to essentially everyone in the U.S. You know, triple axe murderers, he says, get bail hearings. It doesn't mean they get out. He said that the baddies um, would be kept in detention. This is only an opportunity for bail. Uh, Alito pushed back on that point, saying that Congress had sort of recognized that courts had trouble determining who among this class would would be safe to release. So Congress had just taken the discretion out of the court's hand because they, they thought the courts had trouble really discerning who should be allowed to get out. Is there something in, in your mind, you've worked in this space, that makes it harder for courts to figure out bail decisions in this context? No, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I mean, it, my look at it is I think, you know, Breyer's point is right in the sense of most of the bad, the baddies, as he says, would be still held in uh, detention under 1226A. But the reality, though, is, I mean, regardless of what Breyer says, I mean, that Congress also probably had that view, had that you know, argument put to them in 1996, and they went the other way. Uh, so in some sense, Cong Breyer is uh, kind of stepping into, uh, you know, relitigating re what Congress uh, decided in 1996, which was to say, no, with certain classes of aliens, so these cr criminal aliens, we want them in, in custody come what may, and we want no uncertainty there. Uh, we don't want the, the risk that an immigration court, uh, a random immigration court, will release somebody who's dangerous, A. And B, the other thing, I mean, back to sort of the resources point in the sense of Congress, I think, was concerned in 1996 that ICE or INS at the time was not actually detaining most criminal aliens uh, in large part because they didn't have the resources to do so. They didn't have the resources to pick up people from the jails. They didn't have the resources to, if people were released, to hunt, hunt for them throughout in, in our society. So Congress wanted to shut that down and actually say, no, uh, ICE, or INS and now ICE have no discretion here. 
and they have to actually pick up people and put them in, in jail. That's I think that's the that's in some sense Congress responded to, to Justice Breyer's sort of practical reality point. Now, the flip side to it is I think the harshness of this application here. I mean, the Ninth Circuit tries to wiggle out of it by saying, well, the rule should be a reasonable degree of immediacy. It doesn't mean that ICE has to be literally stand, you know, sitting in the in the lobby of every jail in the United States. But, you know, it, it gets you into, you know, what about seven years later or 20 years later or 50 years later? I mean, it's clear that aliens have fewer constitutional rights than than others here. But that, but but the law is pretty clear that sort of as the longer aliens stay in the United States, the kind of the more their constitutional rights and equities kick in. Um, so imagine the person on the deathbed 50 years later being picked up by ICE. And you can also imagine kind of a, a pretty strong due process argument. Now, Alito, Justice Alito sort of deals with that due process problem by saying, well, hey, we're, we're not presented with these issues right here. You know, in, in any individual case where the where the equities are such that a due process argument should kick in, well, they should challenge it on an as-applied challenge. So that's essentially how Justice Alito kind of gets out of that. The the government essentially makes the case for no time limit that the, the DHS can wait for really as long as it wants. And this mandatory provision, detention provision, doesn't lap. The attorney for the ACLU here in respondence to Cecilia Wang or Wong, I'm not sure, made the case that it really should be a one-day time limit, that after one day, if DHS doesn't scoop somebody up, the mandatory detention lapses and, and they would get a bail hearing. The justices did sort of talk uh, about time limits between those two, a reasonable time, a reasonable degree of immediacy. Does it strike you as the kind of case um, where there might be a kind of meet in the middle type situation by by the court? Yeah, I mean, I think there could be. I, I think, you know, the, the term when is, uh, you know, <laughs> I guess it sort of depends on the meaning of the word is, is I guess, citing the, our former president. But um, I mean, I mean, arguably the textual, I mean, the plain meaning of it would be immediate, but even the Ninth Circuit said a reasonable degree of immediacy, uh, whether it's one day or 48 hours or whatever else, you know, is there somewhere in the middle? I think, you know, is there, you know, is the middle, you know, somewhere between between 48 hours and 50 years? Right. I don't know where you, where you, where you sort of reach that principal distinction, you know, is two years too short? Is it, is it seven years? I mean, that's, that, I don't know where you sort of come down the line on that because the problem is also, Given the resource constraints that ICE has and the number of jails all over the country and the number of sanctuary cities and states that don't talk to ICE and let ICE know when people are going to be released, uh, I don't think necessarily 48 hours or 24 hours really helps the situation here because I think in many circumstances uh, it's going to it's going to be months or years before ICE tracks down somebody, or it could be like in like what happened with uh, Moni Priap is that ICE found the person because he was picked up for battery. Uh, and while the, the the battery conviction itself wasn't wasn't serious enough to warrant uh, deportation itself, but but his prior marijuana possession conviction was, and so when he was picked up for battery, he was referred to ICE, and the ICE picked him up. So it could be happenstance as to when somebody gets picked up. So so I'm not sure. I don't I don't know whether you can find a uh, kind of a reasonable ground in between uh, to find to find it. So it's it's really. It's kind of, you know, the, the textual, the pure textualist reading of the statute kind of leads to kind of sort of a, an odd result that would, would probably contravene the intent of Congress. But on the other hand, the flip side argument lead proves too much and leads you to the, you know, at what point could you draw the line and say, no, at this point, this is, this is a due process problem. Yeah. 
Okay, that maybe would be my last question for you is, um, you know, say the, the, the former of those two outcomes prevails, a strict textualist approach is, is reached, and, and when mm-hmm. is de- determined to mean, you know, pretty much precisely when a person is released. And so that forces the government and DHS to, to really muster a lot of resources to try to catch and scoop up folks when they're released from criminal custody. Um, you know, to what extent do you think that would really start to, again, inflame the rancor that has intermittently existed between state and federal governments over the issue of sanctuary cities, it seems to have died down a little bit. But if the court says, hey, DHS, you really have to be on the ball here and know where released and now potentially removable folks are right away, it seems like there would be a lot more of a push by the government to push against sanctuary city type policies. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's only really died down because I think the, the Trump administration has faced uh, multiple defeats in court in trying to crack down on sanctuary cities and states. I mean, they sued the state of California, and for the most part, some little bit bit of twist and twist on that, but they mostly lost that case. So, yeah, <laughs> I think I think it would. I mean, it sort of would add fuel to the fire here on the sanctuary city, sanctuary state debate. The other thing is also just as a practical reality. Yeah, I mean, ICE, I mean, it certainly has more resources now than it did in, and then INS did in 1996. So ICE could start to apprehend people more quickly out of jails. But of course, as you say, I mean, the sanctuary cities aren't going to tell ICE when people are being released. Uh, at least many of them will, not, not all. I mean, there, there are different variants of sanctuary city. But then beyond that, also think of it this way. I think of the other practical reality is that now if you do have this textualist reading, that means that a lot of these people who would be subject to mandatory detention under 1226C are now subject to detention under 1226A and therefore can seek a bail hearing, which you know makes sense from a due process point of view. But we also know that the immigration courts are backlogged by about 700,000 cases in general. So now you're going to pile a whole bunch of bail hearings on an already uh, backlog system that is basically straining at the seams of the immigration court system. So that, that, I mean, I think a a ruling, a textualist ruling here is not only going to have resource, huge resource implications for ICE, but it's also going to have resource implications for the immigration courts. Okay, well, certainly an interesting case. We'll see how it resolves here in the next uh, next few months. Uh, Seth Stoddard, partner with Holland and Knight. Thanks so much for being on the podcast to talk about it with us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Many commentators regard the U.S. Supreme Court, but few do so like Dr. Adam Feldman, California-based attorney and scholar who takes a data-driven approach to analyzing and often predicting judicial behavior. He runs the very excellent blog Empirical SCOTUS, where his most recent posting looks through his trademark quantitative lens to try to foresee what this Supreme Court term might entail for its newest justice. To discuss that and a good bit more, he joins us now. Dr. Feldman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk today about your, your latest empirical SCOTUS post. It's a sort of quantitative approach, of course, to previewing based on some historical data, the first term we're likely to get from our newest Supreme Court Justice, Brett Kavanaugh. Before jumping to that, though, I noticed in, in, in doing some research for our interview, a piece that you wrote for the Pennsylvania Law Review two years ago that has sort of renewed salience during these past couple of months. There's a piece about... Um, Supreme Court confirmations. That's called Reframing 
the confirmation debate. And I, I think it's fair to say sort of the central theme was that the current confirmation process proceeds often sort of uh, suboptimally. I think that was certainly yeah. uh, something we witnessed these past few weeks. And one thing that you, you note is that the maybe true fight is kind of obscured by the, the debate that is voiced, that folks maybe pretend to, to fight over someone's judicial style or their approach to, say, originalism. And what the fight really is about is their political viewpoints, their uh, policy views, their partisan inclinations, because folks know that those inclinations will determine the judge's behavior on the bench. Uh, maybe tell me a bit about that piece and why you wrote it around the time of uh, the last confirmation fight. So I, I began thinking about this when Merrick Garland was uh, nominated and then was uh, not confirmed. Not, there was no Senate hearing, um, and he he sat uh, for over 200 days. I think it was actually closer to 300 days without a, a Senate hearing. And uh, there was discussion about how during uh, the end of Obama's presidency, he couldn't uh, have the, the ability to nominate a Supreme Court justice. So a lot of this was coming from Senator McConnell. And the discussion sounded mostly procedural. But when we look at we look at the discussion around Supreme Court justices and, and nominations, there's always been political undertones uh, as far back as, as I can remember. And these undertones are issue specific. We hear presidents say that they have some kind of litmus test is oftentimes used to describe how they um, look for for certain uh, individuals as, as justices. And so the political conversation goes on underneath, really, the, the guise of, of, of more procedural discussion. Uh, and I, I think it was important to bring out in the open uh, this, this notion that it is a political fight as well, and it's issue-related. And and so I, I didn't want that to get lost in the mix. Yeah, it seems like also part of your thesis is that it's sort of otherwise somewhat inexplicable that these fights are so darn heated if really we're operating under the sort of uh, presumption that we all at least try to pretend that we are, that judges' behavior is determined by the law and the facts of a given case and not their personal predilections. So you do note in, in your piece that that maybe had been in fact, uh, the, the truly prevailing belief up to maybe the middle of the 20th century when greater research was done to sort of peg justices on a political spectrum. But you say for a long period of time, um, folks did, you know, let confirmation battles go by without too much tumult, right? So so the, the tenor has changed uh, somewhat. But when we look uh, across the history of, of confirmation to the Supreme Court, and especially since there have been uh, Senate hearings, they, they, they have been pretty pretty robust fights. We look to the first time the Senate uh, had a, a hearing of the Judiciary Committee to confirm a nominee uh, was Justice Brandeis in uh, the, the first decade of the, the second decade of the 20th uh, century. And, and that was actually the longest uh, the longest uh, set of confirmation hearings went on for 19 days, I believe. And and so that that had to do with mostly uh, Brandeis and business interests. He uh, was was not uh, a strong proponent of, of big business uh, at the time, and there were uh, strong interests. And and so the, the the confirmation went on for a prolonged period. Now that's a different type of fight than than we have today. And after Brandeis, actually, the uh, confirmation hearings 
for the most part, uh, took a, a more uh, mild tone. But uh, now that, that issues uh, surround civil and individual liberties, it, it really does seem to provoke a, a fight. And that's, that's what ideological lines are often drawn um, across when we think about liberals and conservatives and we talk about policy preferences. Oftentimes it has to do with with individual liberties in particular and some of the more salient issues like we uh, heard uh, with the Kavanaugh nomination in the hearings surround abortion, death, the death penalty, issues that are, are salient to the public and uh, that have um, that have big implications politically and at the, uh, both the state and, and federal legal uh, levels. Okay, so in 2016 when you wrote this piece and, and again over the past few months there's been some conversation as to the the, the number of justices that comprise the court, of course, it sits at nine. Presently, it was at eight for about a year while Garland's nomination pended, and then Gorsuch was eventually confirmed. As you write, the court has, has contained both greater and fewer than nine justices during the country's history. There's nothing in the Constitution stipulating a particular number, but we have been at nine for a pretty long time, right? We've, we've been at nine since uh, just after the Civil War. I mean, it, it seems like Early in the nation's history, um, there, uh, there there was somewhat of a, an experiment uh, with with how many justices uh, would be the optimal number on the court. Started with with six, and it moved uh, up to, to ten at one point, and uh, then it settled at, at nine, and has been at nine since since the 1870s. Aside from periods when in a uh, a vacancy, especially a prolonged vacancy in uh, after justice. Scalia passed away, and before uh, Justice Gorsuch was confirmed uh, to the court. So, so really, there there is no no uh, reason why there should be nine outside of uh, outside of the fact that there's legislation now holding nine seats for the Supreme Court, and it it, it has kind of uh, an institutional grounding. Um, so it's something that we've become used to, and uh, and change is is very difficult after uh, something's been in. in for over a century. Sure. Institutional inertia can be a pretty powerful thing, but there have been discussions about potentially adding some justices to the court in a response to the way that the last couple of confirmation hearings have, have gone. I want to get into that in just a second, but one other suggestion as a, a means by which the temperature could be turned down a bit in these confirmation fights is setting term limits for justices. So someone like Brett Kavanaugh, fairly young, man wouldn't necessarily be uh, having his views set on the Supreme Court for the next, who knows, 30 or 40 years, something maybe along the lines of a 12, 18-year term that wouldn't be uh, renewable. You mentioned in, in your piece, actually, something about this, that in the Federalist Papers, the issue of, of non-life tenure was discussed and, and sort of dismissed as, as worrisome because it, it could incentivize justices to look past their tenure on the court and see uh, maybe a lucrative offer that could be theirs were they to rule in a particular maybe industry's favor. That's something that kind of people talk about in terms of congressmen or women making sure they keep their post-Congress tenures you know, lucrative by voting the way a particular lobbyist group or industry would like them to, and then jumping into that group after their time. But sure. um, so that maybe the term limit idea does have some some problems to it, right? So th- there are, are some uh, definite flaws with the idea of, of term limits. And I, I think this really comes down to uh, almost a, a discussion um, that's similar to the ones that judges have on the court to do with if we should look at 
uh, more originalist view or um, should take a, a, a more pragmatic or evolved view on term limits and, and on what we want from the justices. Because in the, the 17, late uh, 1700s, when uh, the Constitution was written, there, there wasn't necessarily an expectation that mortality rates would increase to what they are today, that we would have justices that live into their 90s um, and you know, late 90s, as we've seen with uh, Justice Stevens, who's now retired from the court, but served until he was 90. Uh, Justice Ginsburg recently said that she hoped to serve uh, until 90 as well. Uh, that wasn't an expectation uh, in, in the 1700s uh, that there would be people that sat on justices that sat on the court for 30 years. And so people's views change, people's uh, views on interpretation change, on policy issues change, their mental capacity might not be the same uh, when they uh, when they age as, as when they uh, join the court. And so there, there are, are strong reasons to think, um, at, at least about the possibility of of term limit term limits for uh, justices, um, but but the policy ag- against uh, uh, such uh, uh, term limits still holds strong, um, really from the time of uh, the framing of the Constitution, and that is uh, the, the importance of insulation was was that they, the justices wouldn't feel any pressure from the outside interests or from uh, from the government to rule in a certain way, and al- although we have hopes and expectations that that wouldn't be the case. The, the real policy purpose behind such insulation was that they wouldn't feel those pressures to begin with, so there wouldn't even be such incentives. Uh, so th- there are strong arguments to be made either way, I think, but coming back to uh, to what we, we said with uh, the nine nine justices on the court, the, the uh, length of time that, that we've had this insulation um, it's, it's been so great that there's a, a path dependency where the the expectation um, from people on the court and people outside of the court is that uh, it's going to be uh, for for life tenure. And so to change the trajectory, there w- there would be uh, need to be uh, very strong interests that uh, that really push this uh, in in uh, both the legislative and and public spotlights. You say that were we in the confirmation setting, or maybe just more generally, to have a a more honest conversation about what adding a justice or what um, com- confirming a justice to the Supreme Court means um, so that we could more honestly and fully deal with the merits of uh, a debate over whether a Supreme Court of nine or perhaps of either eight or ten, an even number court would be preferable. Because as you've written, an odd number, a nine-member court can, by and large, unless there are you know, weird splits, decide all the cases in a definitive way. But when you get the five four cases, which invariably come in the instances when the court is dealing with uh, you know, the social questions that folks care about the most, um, the fact that it's decided definitely for the whole country one way tends to make people, you know, on the losing side, fairly upset and and you know, gives them the impression that that we went that way just because the block of five had that preferred policy viewpoint, um, and so the alternative would be, say, if you had an even number court, that couldn't happen. In those instances, if we're stipulating an evenly split court, uh, in those cases, the court would just split. Of course, that brings its own problems wherein there's no definitive ruling on constitutional questions, and perhaps there's de facto different constitutional law in different regions of the country. But um, tell me a bit, I guess, more Mm -hmm. about those various pros and cons of an odd or even number court. So uh, it's, it's interesting right now because uh, it's, it's going to be potentially the first time 
where we have the partisan alignment of uh, the, the justices based on who, uh, uh, which party the president uh, was that nominated them, aligns with their uh, with, with their ideological um, um, perspectives. Uh, if we assume that that uh, Kavanaugh and uh, uh, I, I think there's a lot of strength behind the assumption uh, is going to be more of a conservative justice. This will be the first time we have alignment between these uh, parties and, uh, and and ideological directions, because in the past, we've had many justices nominated by conservative presidents that uh, slip into a more liberal, liberal mode of uh, interpretation. Um, those have included Justices Stevens and Souter, but even to some extent, the uh, the, the people that we know as the swing justices, uh, O'Connor and Kennedy, both re- Republican nominees, both ended up being more moderate justices uh, than maybe they were uh, expected to be early uh, on and when they were when they were nominated. Um, so so this uh, could be interesting now if we have uh, a partisan and an ideological alignment, because then there would be uh, a, a, and could be a, a real discussion of the political pressure from from nomination and how 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 the presidents are really looking for individuals with very, uh, very concrete ideological views. Now, if we had uh, a court of, of eight members, uh, even if it was split ideologically, um, the, uh, the the court couldn't com- come to decisions uh, on on even splits. So, uh, if it was a, a four to four uh, court with four uh, conservatives and four liberals, the uh, the the court couldn't split along um, along uh, lines that were partisan and, and come to any decision. So, really. It would be forced to 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 have more involved discussions over uh, compromise, uh, which which could be a uh, which could be a good thing, and it could also uh, prevent the court from getting uh, much business accomplished. But what we saw in the uh, 2016 term um, for Justice Gorsuch joined the court was very interesting, um, in that the uh, the court of eight justices didn't split evenly. Uh, uh, even one time, um, so uh, so to, to many people's surprise, this uh, w- what had been seen as a very uh, ideological court um, was able to, to reach consensus on uh, on all the cases it heard, and I think that was a, a, a good signal from uh, from the justices that they were able to work together even uh, when there there wasn't uh, necessarily a, a majority majority to be had in every case. Um, the the problem uh, with the idea of having an even number of justices is that um, the type of cases that they uh, the court might take uh, could change. Um, it, if the justices uh, want to reach consensus and know that it is uh, troubling over uh, over salient uh, issues, uh, especially to deal with uh, that deal with individual rights, um, then they might look to avoid those cases in, in hopes of. Uh, of, of having a docket that is uh, uh, less politically oriented, and that's that's its own discussion, really, of what types of cases the court should hear. But if if the justices are afraid of not being able to find a majority, then then the hope is that they would take cases that maybe uh, weren't as as ideologically salient uh, and that pushed them uh, to split uh, evenly against each other. So there's a, a good reason why. We have a tie-breaking vote, a ninth, a ninth vote. But depending on uh, what we see as as the policy, uh, the, the the intended policy 
behind uh, Supreme Court's rulings in, in, in general terms um, might guide our uh, perspective on, on whether uh, we, we think it's better to have an even or odd number of justices on the court. Um, maybe just one, one more question on that. And I ask this question, I concede as a, a person who pines for a, a Cincinnatus-type character to take a brief sort of turn on the, the government's days with plenipotentiary power to add maybe one left-leaning justice to even things out and put us at 10. But were that to happen, I mean, the I see, I see some potential um, benefits from having slightly different constitutional law apply in different regions of the country, which their characteristics are tend to be fairly different and demographics and, and social values tend to be somewhat different. I, I suppose that sort of is, is in some ways anathema to having one unified constitutional law system. Do, do you think a, a varying constitutional law throughout those different circuits and regions could be something that, that works at all? I, I think it's something that we're we're probably going to start to see a little bit, and that's that's just a hypothesis of mine. Um, but but when we hear Justice Roberts talk about how uh, Chief Justice Roberts talk about how the court really isn't a political institution, and uh, and that uh, that it doesn't uh, have partisanship in the same way uh, that the elected branches do, um, now that we have a, a court that um, has uh, five Republican nominees and four Democrat nominees, and that we expect that to split along ideological lines. Uh, one, one way that, uh, that Chief Justice Roberts could really push to, uh, avoid this, this image of a, a partisan court is, uh, is to select cases that, uh, that don't have such implications uh, in the same way. So, Similar to what um, what I was mentioning with with eight justices, how the court as, as a body really might avoid certain issues. I, I think we might see some of that now, uh, more based on the, the image and legitimacy of the court and how uh, that might take a dive if it's seen as really partisan. If there are a lot of five four votes along those lines, then then the justices and especially Chief Justice Roberts are incentivized. To uh, to avoid some of these issues, and if if the court avoids issues uh, like abortion, um, which has taken up uh, numerous times in the past, then it really falls to the states to uh, to come up with uh, their own laws, and 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 so it, it you know whereas in the past it's been a back and forth between the court and and states, and then the Supreme Court you know, ruled on the constitutionality of state statutes. We might see a little bit less of that, and, and that would free up the states uh, to to make their own decisions. And so uh, we would have a, a different checkerboard of, of laws potentially across the country. Sure. Let's turn to, to your latest piece here in uh, Empirical SCOTUS, uh, predicting uh, on a quantitative basis what you might expect from Brett Kavanaugh's first term. One of the first things you look at is how his his margin, his confirmation margin, is fairly slim one, and his popular appeal nationally could impact his behavior on the court. So to that, his confirmation margin, margin was almost the slimmest ever, though there were, it was by two votes. There has been one instance, you say, where there was a, a one-vote majority. Is that right? Yeah, so it, it was in a very different time. Um, this was in the uh, late 1800s. Uh, Justice Matthews was confirmed by a margin of uh, 24 to 23 votes, so a, a one-vote margin. And, and so that, that was the slimmest historically. But, uh, but things are very different now. Uh, obviously, 
the, the uh, Senate um, is 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 all uh, the, the entire Senate's involved in the vote, and 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 we uh, we've seen um, much more uh, partisan splits uh, for for some of the uh, recent nominees, Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh. The last two for sure um, certainly had uh, uh, splits along partisan uh, lines in the votes. And, and so it, it's a very different tenor now than, than it had been in the past. But I, I think that, that the real tone of, of, of confirmation hearings uh, changed quite a bit in the uh, late 80s with uh, the Bork hearings, uh, early 90s with the Thomas hearings. And, uh, and, and so uh, we, we've seen uh, much more fight along these partisan lines than, uh, than, than we had in, in the past. So then the the natural question that arises from thinking about these sorts of things is whether, say, squeaking through by a very slim margin might sort of abash a, a justice and cause him to be a bit reticent, at least initially, on the court. It's something that bore out, as you write, with uh, Clarence Thomas, passed by a four-vote margin, and who has, perhaps not consequentially, but who indeed has been silent in many, many oral arguments is, is known to not talk a whole heck of a lot. But you say that on the past, the first couple of days of Brett Kavanaugh's term, he doesn't seem to be following that pattern, right? That he has put uh, several words in and taken a good number of turns uh, speaking uh, from the bench. That's that's right. Um, now, initially, I thought uh, uh, just of this uh, relationship potentially between Justices uh, Thomas and Kavanaugh and uh, how that might affect their behavior. Uh, not only because of the the vote margin, but also because of uh, what what the uh, what happened during their hearings and, and the accusations, and that they were both later confirmed. But the, the there there this kind of a shadow over over both of their uh, their their confirmation processes, where uh, where these these accusations um, kind of still uh, follow them around. And uh, there was lots of discussion after after Thomas was confirmed to the court. About how the hearings affected his his ability to really uh, engage uh, in the public spotlight, and how that might have influenced uh, his uh, decision to not engage from the bench during during oral arguments. And so I was curious to see what the similarities would be uh, with, with Justice Kavanaugh now that uh, he's set through uh, for oral arguments and uh, you know, to see. If he was, uh, if he's, if he was going to engage uh, with the attorneys in, in uh, a way different than, uh, than Justice Thomas, and uh, so far he's shown that uh, he, he's been willing to participate. Um, he he has not been the most uh, most uh, verbose justice on on the bench uh, that that um, has gone in the past and uh, still um, is, is retained by Justice Breyer. But Justice Kavanaugh's had uh, had something to say during each of the oral arguments and has uh, said more than uh, at least one other justice in, in all four of the arguments that he's uh, that he's been a part of and so uh, so I, I think it's it's probably pretty safe to say that, that he's going to be an active participant uh, during oral arguments okay uh, one thing you also tried to to look at maybe game out is is whether a slim voting margin slim confirmation margin might impacted justice's legitimacy as viewed by his, his peers on the bench. How did you go about computing this? It was uh, along the lines of seeing how how big the majorities were that a justice had when he would write in, in opinion. Is that right? 
So this was uh, definitely just uh, experimental um, analysis on, on my part, uh, based on the uh, the theory that, uh, that that when the justice is confirmed by a smaller margin, um, they might not be seen in the same light by their by their peers on the court as a justice that was confirmed by a large margin. Now, I, I attempted to look at this from from different angles because uh, there are lots of other processes that are going on in terms of uh, the justices votes and decision making that uh, that affect the majority coalitions and, and affect the behavior of the other justices. So to be able to isolate um, a, a new justice's legitimacy is, is somewhat difficult because there are, are so many other things going on at the same time. Um, so I looked at the, the average uh, size of the majority coalitions behind them to see if the uh, margin by which they were confirmed has any relationship to the uh, to, to their uh, majorities. And, uh, and, and we, we, we don't have that, that correlation, uh, but what we uh, see much more, I think, is that, uh, that the types of opinions that the justices are assigned uh, really affects the, uh, the size of the majority. So we saw last term Justice Gorsuch was assigned uh, many of the, uh, the, the, the 5-4 decisions of the court, some of the, uh, the, the more ideological cases. So he had smaller majorities, but when we look at the at the top side, we we have uh, Justice uh, Justice Breyer uh, Ginsburg and uh, Justice Breyer Kagan and Thomas. Justice Thomas was confirmed uh, was confirmed by such a slim margin that that uh, somewhat disproves that point. Um, the the one thing that I, I did find that that somewhat uh, strongly correlates with uh, with the, the margin of confirmation was the times the, the frequency with which a justice is in the majority during their first uh, full term so uh, the, the frequency with which they're voting with the the, co- the court's majority in their first full term um, we see that the the justices uh, that were over 90 percent uh, for the most part uh, the justices were were all over 90 percent except uh, for Kagan Sotomayor Gorsuch and Thomas um, and and their margins of uh, of confirmation votes by which they're confirmed by uh, was was somewhat smaller than uh, than Ginsburg and, and Breyer and some of the other justices. Um, so so there is a there is some correlation there in terms of times in the uh, uh, frequency in the majority. Um, but that was really the only measure that I found uh, that lined up well with the uh, with with uh, the margin of confirmation votes. Okay, uh, now. One question that that many have is how new Justice Kavanaugh will um, come down ideologically as a as a Supreme Court justice, whether he will be a reliable right a justice. One thing I thought was interesting, that you know, is that it tends to be the case that new justices start their careers closer to the middle than they perhaps end up. That uh, many of the current justices have have had that pattern where they start fairly close to center and then drift maybe towards the uh, ideological direction you would expect. Uh, maybe an exception to that was he uh, said uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who's been fairly steady. Can you tell me a bit, bit more about how you construct this mm-hmm. measure, how you sort of determine whether a vote is ideological one way or the other and how the, the patterns have uh, held up over the past few years? So uh, the, the, the measure that I use is uh, based on a measure developed by political scientists, uh, Andrew Martin and Kevin Quinn, um, and... What it, uh, what the measure does is looks at, uh, who the justices vote with, uh, most frequently. So you, you set, uh, justice to the most 
conservative poll and to the most liberal liberal poll uh, of, of these spectrums. And after you set them, um, you look at how the justices vote along with those uh, with those justices that you you set at the polls, and that gives you a, a sense of uh, how they they fit uh, ideologically on on the court. Um, and so, what we've seen with this measure is that um, oftentimes there's uh, there's drift with the justices. In the, in the past, we uh, actually saw mostly a leftward drift, um, and uh, that was the case with uh, with Stevens and Souter in particular, but with other justices like uh, Blackman as well. Um, there was a, a definite trajectory uh, in the liberal, uh, a definite move in the, the liberal trajectory. And, and now we're seeing a little bit of, of the opposite, where uh, it's not only a move to the left, but that justices start out a little bit more moderate and then move towards uh, one ideological pull or the other. Um, we've seen that with uh, Justice Thomas, with uh, Justice Alito, uh, as well as Justices Breyer and Ginsburg, uh, who all started uh, much closer to the center and uh, became more ideolo- ideological as they spent more time on the court. And this might have to do with, with uh, multiple factors, um, including uh, willingness to, uh, to to vote strongly along uh, along ideological lines, uh, preference-based votes, but also uh, having to do with the uh, with the case selection that the court's hearing. Um, maybe the court um, has heard more uh, cases that are, are ideological um, as these justices have sat on the court for longer periods of time, um, or uh, have having to do with the composition of the court at any given time. Now, justices. Uh, views are uh, going to be most uh, transparent relative to uh, the other justices on the court. So uh, a, a conservative court might push a liberal justice even more in a liberal direction and, and vice versa for a conservative justice. Uh, so so the uh, the positioning of the justice and their movement over time uh, very well might have to do with the, uh, the court's composition as well as a justice's willingness uh, and com- uh, comfort in, in voting uh, more along uh, preference-based lines. Okay, so uh, if that measure takes a few terms to sort of bear out, um, one that you say mm-hmm. might not is the the justice coalition, uh, the, the coalitions that justices tend to congregate around. You say this is something that we can learn pretty quickly. It did seem to happen over the past couple of terms where you you notice that Gorsuch and, say, Thomas and often Alito voted together Darner every time, uh, although not always. Um, so, uh, how how has this measure been sort of constructed, or how how quickly do you tend to know the coalition's justices will likely join? And do you think uh, maybe what do you think the most likely coalition or coalitions that will find uh, Brett Kavanaugh in this term? So there there have been um, scholars that that have have been coding Supreme Court cases for a number of years now, um, mostly political science scholars. As well as some from uh, from law departments, and they, they code these based on um, a a coding manual that 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 gives directions for when a case is decided conservatively versus when it has uh, more of a liberal outcome. So, uh, in in criminal cases, for instance, uh, the conservative outcome tends to be uh, when the court sides with the with the government, and the more liberal outcome. Is when the justices side with uh, the the accused, and uh, and so this uh, this method of, of coding uh, has been uh, extrapolated to all different types of cases, and and based on that, um, we uh, we have 
some notion of how liberal or conservative the justices are on a case-to-case basis. And that's that's shown us also um, the uh, the ideological direction of the justices' votes, along with the movement of the court over time. Um, and so it's it's uh, it's it's one way that we can uh, gauge the justices' preferences and gauge their uh, ideological predispositions. And so we're going to uh, know uh, after after um, a number of opinions that, that Justice Kavanaugh participates in. Uh, which which ideological direction he uh, favors more strongly? Now, obviously, it's, it, it's predicted that uh, based on his uh, nomination um, and his past behavior um, on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, that uh, he's going to be more of a conservative justice. But during the uh, the confirmation hearings, one one fact that was uh, that was brought to bear was that uh, that that Justice Kavanaugh, uh, then Judge Kavanaugh, frequently voted alongside. Uh, Judge Garland on the uh, on the D.C. Circuit over 90% of the time uh, they they voted in the same direction. So that was that was used as uh, as a proxy for the uh, notion that maybe Justice Kavanaugh is more of a uh, of a moderate vote than a strong conservative vote. Whether or not this is the case, uh, we we don't know um, at all yet because there's uh, there there are great differences between uh, justices' freedom to vote uh, along um, along preference-based lines on a, a circuit court where uh, the precedent on the Supreme Court uh, is binding on, on the justice decisions, uh, the judges' decisions on the appeals court and, uh, and is persuasive uh, for justices on the Supreme Court. But uh, one of the, uh, one of the, the, the powers uh, held by Supreme Court justices uh, is the ability to overturn the court's precedent. So uh, there, there aren't the same constraints at the Supreme Court level, and we shouldn't necessarily expect the same voting patterns from uh, Justice Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court than we saw on uh, the Circuit Court of Appeals. And so the expectation is he's going to vote alongside uh, the court's right, um, especially Alito and Gorsuch. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh was a clerk uh, for Justice Kennedy, um, just as Justice Gorsuch was as well. And uh, and so uh, there, there's some expectation that there's going to be a similar voting dynamic between the two justices as well. Uh, but we, we have to wait uh, and see after uh, at least a number of opinions uh, have been decided by the court this term, whether uh, these predictions are accurate or not. Sure. Okay, maybe just one, one last one for you. So I've uh, been talking uh, uh, quantitatively here, but do you have any sort of overall qualitative thoughts on Brett Kavanaugh's the first week now on the high court or uh, about the conclusion of his hearings or anything you're sort of looking forward to as a, as a court watcher and, and scholar here over the, the upcoming term or, or next series of terms? So I, I, I'm definitely uh, awaiting uh, uh, his writing a majority opinion. Yeah. I think that that gives a lot of understanding um, of, of where the uh, justice might fall in terms of uh, relative to the other justices uh, voting preferences on the court. Uh, but also the, uh, the the type of uh, language the justice likes to engage in. We saw very early on with Justice Gorsuch uh, that he wrote in uh, in originalist prose and uh, and, and um, repeatedly cited back to uh, the Constitution as well as uh, as, as different um, doctrine that were around at the time of the, the framing of the Constitution. The, the writing of opinions, majority or, or secondary opinions uh, in the form of dissents or concurrences, gives us a lot of insight into the, the justices, and possibly more so uh, than than votes do alone. Justice 
Kavanaugh participated in his first uh, vote the other night when uh, the the Supreme Court decided uh, not to uh, not to stay uh, an execution, um, and the two dissenting votes were from uh, justices Sotomayor uh, and, and Breyer, who often uh, dissent in, in these uh, death penalty decisions. Um, so we we didn't see anything from Justice Kavanaugh that 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 leads um, to the suspicion that he. Uh, I uh, was uh, in, in favor of uh, not having uh, the state of execution. So we, we can gain a little bit of insight on the justices from their votes, but uh, I'm really looking forward to, to reading his opinions um, and, and also tracking uh, the, uh, not only the amount of participation that he has in oral arguments, but the types of questions that he asks, the, uh, the types of interests that he has in, in various cases also sheds a lot of light on his his personality and perspective as, as a justice. And, and so, um, you know, my, my goal is to learn uh, as much about him in a short period of time as I can and, uh, and that way get a sense of uh, the direction the court might be taking moving forward because we really are on, uh, on a different path now, um, as, as I mentioned, where we have justice law aligned both uh, on, on partisan lines and ideological lines. Um, so this is, this is a first, and it's going to be an interesting test for the court to see um, to see where where it goes from here. Sure. Well, certainly it sounds like uh, you will have plenty of interesting work ahead of you over these next few terms. Dr. Adam Feldman, uh, you can find his work at his blog, Empirical SCOTUS, and also is featured in the, on the SCOTUS blog. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. And that is our show for October 12th, 2018. Thanks one more time to all my guests, Seth Dotter, Adam Feldman, and our very own Malcolm McLaughlin. Uh, thanks also to my production staff here, Principal Nick Perez. And of course, thanks to you for tuning in. Don't forget a couple of things. One, CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. One, California credit can be yours simply by finding and completing a short true-false test that can be found on the page where this podcast appears on the Daily Journal site. And if you have not already, please look for our program on the various streaming podcast avenues, including iTunes, the podcast app, and really wherever you find your podcast. Finding us there, listening, and rating us in particular helps other folks find the podcast, and we greatly appreciate it. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.